Do you guys need one? You got one. Okay, I think we're about ready to get started this morning. Let's, um, let's begin by praying together. Uh, Father, we're grateful for um, the Lord's Day. We're grateful for the opportunity we have this morning again to gather together in your presence as your people, um, the people to whom you've promised um, to be their God, um, that you have promised to draw near to us, especially on this day. And Father, we ask that that would be the case, that even now that you'd be preparing our hearts for worship as we um, continue to think together about the world around us and the way in which you uh, work within it. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we are um, uh, this morning concluding our series um, on uh, Kuiper's Lectures in Calvinism. Um, uh, we began this in November and, and have continued it through December and now halfway through January. Um, next week, um, we're going to be starting a new series. Um, Y'all... Uh, that have been with us know that our typical pattern is to do some uh, theological um, and practical work in the fall together in Sunday school, and then um, usually in the winter term to take a break to look at a book from a different age, which we have done this year by looking at Kuiper, and then in the spring we try to do um, some work in the scripture specifically. And so um, next week and for the next couple weeks, I want us all to be together for Sunday school and to look at a scriptural topic um, called preterism. And the reason that I want us to talk about preterism, which is the idea that, um, that in the New Testament, the prophecies that are given are largely fulfilled within the context of the New Testament itself. There are some exceptions, of course, the things that we still look forward to in the creeds, the resurrection from the dead, the final coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the renewal and recreation of all things. Um, those prophecies are still future, but um, preterism is the interpretive idea in the New Testament that, that uh, the bulk of the rest of the prophecies are actually fulfilled within the context of the New Testament era and the apostolic age and actually before the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. Uh, the reason that I want us to spend a few weeks looking at this scriptural topic and interpretive principle is because in our sermon series, um, we are coming up onto Mark 13. Um, anyone know what Mark 13 describes or records? It's the Olivet Discourse, right? It's the place where Jesus, um, on the Mount of Olives, um, his disciples ask him, when will these things be? Uh, referring to, um, I believe, the destruction of the temple, um, because Jesus has just come out of the temple gates and has um, prophesied about the destruction of the temple. Uh, the apostles ask, when will these things be? And Jesus proceeds to answer them. Um, and so it's going to be really important when we come to those passages in our Sunday morning uh, worship as we're working through Mark that we have a, a, a framework to interpret um, that passage. And the framework that I'm approaching it through is this view that I would call a partial preterism um, uh, that I think is really helpful, um, both in terms of interpreting texts like Mark 13, but also just generally in terms of understanding the New Testament. And that's um, um, as uh, one of the pastors here, that's my desire for you, is for you to have a sense of how Scripture works and how to interpret it rightly. So 
want to spend a few weeks um, starting next week looking at partial preterism and then we're going to break up into separate classes and there'll be more details about that. You'll have um, some options um, starting around February um, to, uh, to choose from. Um, so we'll, we'll have more details about that as we get closer. Um, so today though we have a, a few uh, minutes here to look at um, the, the remainder of Kuiper. I hope that this series has been helpful for you. I, I think it really has for me. It's been good to do a close study of this work, um, this classic work that comes from a different era, a different age. I think it's really helpful to read someone who is um, writing in a, in a very different century. Um, they're similar in some ways. We'll talk about some of those similarities today, I think, because he um, interacts with the modern age and much of what will sound familiar to us, I think. Um, but also a very different context, uh, a man who's not American, um, whose first language is not English, who writes uh, in a different cultural moment and age and time and, sp and space, um, and uh, is not even Presbyterian. I mean, he's Reformed, generally, but he's not Presbyterian. He's coming from these things from a different perspective and angle, and I think it's been helpful, um, for me at least, and I hope for you as well, um, to consider what Kuiper has to say. Um, so in this last lecture, remember Kuiper um, began his lecture series um, at Princeton there in 1898 by arguing for um, Calvinism, um, by which he largely means just uh, Protestant Christianity, a Reformed Protestant Christianity, um, as a life system. The idea that, that um, Protestant Christianity, uh, when taken seriously, constitutes not just particular beliefs about the world, but an all-encompassing view of life, um, that it was very important for Kuiper to, to, for that uh, our, our convictions about God and uh, the scriptures and who we are in light of those things to frame everything about our lives, um, that, that all of it um, is under his dominion and lordship. And then Kuiper in the different lectures that followed began to apply that life system to different areas, um, religion, um, politics, um, art, and science um, were the topics in the lectures that followed. And then finally he comes today to the topic of the future, which is an interesting um, topic to end on, um, Calvinism and the future. Um, Kuiper, remember, spoke in 1898, the, the, the beginning of a new, almost the beginning of the new century, the end of one century, the, the turning of the, of the century. Um, and certainly for him, um, there was a lot of anxiety, I think, or, or concern, uh, uh, not, not uh, unhealthy anxiety, but I think a proper sort of concern and anxiety about the future, what, what the future would bring. Uh, and this is something that um, I think we can relate to if we think about our day and age. Um, the future is, uh, by definition, uncertain, um, outside of some very definite things that God has promised, uh, especially regarding the, uh, the work of the Spirit and the return of the Son. Um, but how we get to that end, that is a good end, uh, we don't know. Um, the future is uncertain to us. It's uncertain in the context of our own uh, daily lives, our own uh, personal families, and our own lifetime. Uh, we don't know that. Um, we don't know what those days will bring. But it's also uncertain in terms of um, the way in which the Spirit will move throughout history. You know, what will uh, the cultural landscape look like in 10 years? What will uh, politics be like? Will um, there be war, right? We've all kind of have walked through that in the last couple of weeks in a, in, a, in a way with some of the tensions that have happened on the geopolitical scene. Um, and so the future is uncertain. And so um, Kuiper, as he concludes his lecture series, wants to take a little time to think about the future um, from the perspective of 
this uh, Reformed Protestant conviction that he shares with us? And what does that mean? What does it mean to view the future through that lens? Um, so, so here's what he says um, at the beginning of this lecture. He says, the prospect of this future does not present itself to us, as every student of sociology will acknowledge, in bright colors. So he's not overly optimistic, at least about the immediate future. I would not go so far as to assert that we are on the eve of universal social bankruptcy. So that would be pretty bad, universal social bankruptcy. <laughs> so he's not, he says, not quite that bad. But that the signs of the times are ominous admits of no denial. To be sure, in the control of nature and her forces, immense gains are being registered year by year. And the boldest imagination is unable to foretell what heights of power in this respect the race may attain in the next half century, right? What command over the natural world? It's, it's kind of funny to read that, right? Because in 50 years after uh, Kuiper, you know, people would be flying uh, in airplanes, um, which he couldn't imagine at the time, right? Um, uh, all sorts of things would be, uh, you know, you know, tanks would exist, uh, you know, machine guns, all these kinds of things that, um, technological things that happened, uh, the radio, you know, all these things that took place in the next 50 years that Kuiper um, could not have imagined at his time. And he, and he says, but he says, even though I can't imagine exactly what it's going to be like, I'm pretty sure a lot's going to happen. He was right about that. As a result of this, the comforts of life are increasing, Right? The comforts of life are increasing. He was already beginning to feel that at the end of the 20th century, or I'm sorry, end of the 19th century. World intercourse and communication are constantly becoming more rapid and widespread, i.e. a guy from the Netherlands is going to Princeton to do a lecture series, um, which is, you know, it's, it's a, it was a much more difficult task um, in 1898 than it would be today, but it was a much easier task in 1898 than it would have been 100 years prior to that. Um, and, and it's interesting that he says that, right? This, uh, in his day and age, um, world intercourse and communications are constantly becoming more rapid and widespread. Um, and of course, we experience this now exponentially um, through um, the internet, through all sorts of uh, things um, and technologies that exist now. Asia and Africa, until recently dormant, gradually feel themselves drawn into the larger circle of stirring life, right? These Whole continents are being drawn into a global conversation and commerce, and that, of course, has continued into our age. The principles of hygiene exert a growing influence. Um, uh, more is being learned at the time which he writes, and much more would be learned in the next hundred years about disease and about human sickness and how to prevent it. Consequently, we are physically stronger than the preceding generation. We live longer. And in combating the defects and infirmities that threaten and afflict our bodily life, surgical science makes us marvel at her achievements. You have no idea, Mr. Kuiper, right? <laughs> they will transplant hearts um, <laughs> in the future. In brief, the material, tangible side of life holds out the fairest of promises for the future. So he's saying materially, technologically, um, physically, uh, things are looking up for the human race. Um, uh, he is confident about that. And yet, dis and we could say the same thing today, right? We could, we could look all around us and think about technology and all the things that it promises and, 
and certainly there are, there are you know, some exceptions, but, but largely um, our physical lives um, seem to be on an upward uh, trajectory, and that we have some hope that that will continue. And yet, he says then, and I think applies now also, discontent makes itself heard, and the thinking mind cannot surpass, suppress its mis- misgivings. For however high one may value the material things, they do not fill out the round of our existence as men. Our personal life as men and citizens subsists not in the comforts that surround us, nor in the body, which serves as a link with the outward world, but in the spirit that internally actuates us. And in this inner consciousness, we are becoming more and more painfully aware of how the hypertrophy of our eternal, external life results in a serious atrophy of the spiritual. So he's saying this, this building up of the muscle of the body, of the physical life, um, is, uh, is related, or maybe not related, but at least it's a phenomenon that's taking place as the strength of the soul is decreasing in his view, in his modern age, especially he's speaking in the context of Western Europe and um, Western culture in general, and he is not excited about what he sees around him. Uh, Nietzsche, he says, Nietzsche may give us offense by his sacrilegious mockery, but still what else is his demand for the ubermensch, the overman, right, the superman, um, right? Remember Nietzsche's um, cry for that uh, superman to triumph. But the cry of, what is that though, he says, but a cry of despair wrung from the heart of humanity by the bitter consciousness that it is spiritually pining away. I think that's a lovely phrase and description of um, the philosophy of that um, early modern age that he is speaking into. It's really a cry of despair, um, wrung from the heart of humanity. Um, There's a bitter consciousness that its spiritual life is beyond it, that it is falling away. How often has not the parallel been drawn between our time and the golden age of the Roman Empire, when the external brilliancy of life likewise dazzled the eye, notwithstanding that the social diagnosis could yield no other verdict than rotten to the very core. And although on the American continent, in a younger world, a relatively healthier tone of life prevails than in Sessonant Europe, yet this will not for a moment mislead the thinking mind. It is impossible for you to shut yourselves off hermetically from the old world as you form no humanity apart, but you are a member of the great body of the race, and the poison having once entered the system at a single point in due time must necessarily pervade the whole organism. I think it's helpful for us to hear someone from 1898 writing about his present age and the future in this way, because Um, Sometimes we have this sort of sense of nostalgia about the past, right, that if only we could get back to the cultural landscape of the 50s and 60s or something. Um, I don't know if anyone really wants that, but sometimes you get the impression that people want that, Um, that things will just be great, right, Um, and uh, and our, our nation, our culture, all these things will be fine if we could just go back, turn back the clock a little bit, half century or so, or maybe a little more. Um, but I think when we read Kuiper, we realize that, that this is a common thing, um, that actually uh, the, the, the anxieties that we face presently are anxieties that have been faced for quite some time in Western culture, um, and that it's not just a simple 
Uh, what we need is not just a simple sort of turn back the clock. What we need is something much more radical than that, much more radical um, than, um, than just sort of a, a going back um, in our, into our cultural history. Um, and and, and Kuiper's going to get into that. He says, now the serious question which with, with which we are confronted is whether we can expect by that natural evolution, sort of the natural sort of outworking of things, a higher phase of social life that will develop out of this present spiritual decline, right? Can we just sort of hope that things will probably get better because things usually get better? He says the answer to history supplies that to this question is far from encouraging. In India, in Babylon, in Egypt, in Persia, in China, and elsewhere, like periods of vigorous growth have then been succeeded by times of spiritual decadence. And yet in not one of these lands has the downward course finally resolved itself in a movement toward higher things. So he's going there sort of looking at some of the great civilizations and culture that existed at their core. And then what happened? Well, they fell from power, they fell from prominence, and there was no uh, revival, no restitution of their spiritual life in a, in a, t in a total sense. We, of course, we could talk about the movement of God in India or in Babylon or in Egypt and Persia, China, those places. Um, and yet, I think largely his point is right that, that those are not societies that have been um, made Christian in a fundamental sense um, since their decline. All these nations to this day have preserved in their spiritual stagnation. In the Roman Empire alone has the dark night of boundless demoralization been broken by the dawn of a higher life. So then he says, but there was one culture that was decadent and powerful and rotten, and something happened. Something did change about it. Yes, it lost much of its power and influence in a formal way, but new life came into it, and it was reborn into something new. And he says, how did that happen? This light, the light that shone in the Roman Empire, right, beginning around the uh, 50 AD or, or 30 to 40, 30 AD and, and following uh, with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and the missionary movement of the early church, um, that light did not arise through evolution. It shone from the cross of Calvary. So he, he's arguing that within the Roman Empire, there was um, something that took place, but what took place was this sort of internal uh, reformation and this internal uh, movement of the Spirit um, that because of in God's providence, right, it could have been some other culture that the gospel could have first inhabited and gone forth into, but in, in the Lord's um, will and wisdom, it was the Roman Empire at a point of decadence, at a point of power, um, and rottenness spiritually, something new began, right? Something new began with the crucifixion of a Jewish man outside of Jerusalem, and then the anointing of the Spirit and the sending out of the gospel transformed the Roman Empire from the inside out. It took about, you know, almost 300 years or so, um, or longer, we could talk about, but there was something new that took place within that context. What, what happened to bring about the revolution of this culture um, the restoration of this culture, the renewal of it. The Christ of God appeared, he said, he says. And by his gospel alone was the society of that time saved from certain destruction. Now, the ironic thing here, of course, is that the Roman Empire was destroyed, right? It was, um, the Vandals did come and conquer. Um, they did lose their power in many ways and influence in the world. 
And yet, um, it wasn't destroyed in another sense because it laid the foundation for um, the medieval church and for uh, the church in, in the Western and Western Europe. Um, and that was a, a way in which it, its life was sustained. And of course, culturally, that life was sustained as well. We can still go and visit Western Europe and see some of the things that came out of um, that cultural um, renewal that took place because of the preaching of the gospel. And again, when towards the close of the Middle Ages, Europe was threatened with social bankruptcy, um, and certainly if you read about you know, things in the early 1500s in Western Europe, um, there was a great deal of social bankruptcy, but, but what happened? There was a second resurrection from the dead, Kuiper says, and a manifestation of new vital power were witnessed, not now among the peoples of the Reformation, but this time also not by way of evolution, but again through the same gospel for which the hearts were thirsting and whose truth was freely proclaimed as never before. The gospel of grace was proclaimed in a new way in the early 16th century. And that, Kuiper says, is what led to the restoration and renewal at that time of Western Europe and of that um, society and culture. Nothing can possibly surpass the God-giving Christ, and what we are to look for instead of a second Messiah somewhere out there is the second coming of the same Christ of Calvary, this time with his fan in his hand for judgment, not to open up for our sin-cursed life a new evolution, but to receive as its goal and solemnly can conclude the history of the world. Either this second coming, therefore, is near at hand, and what we are witnessing are the death throes of humanity and his present age, or a rejuvenation is still in store for us. He says it has to be one or the other. Either Christ is going to return soon, or the Spirit will rejuvenate the world in a new way. But if so, that rejuvenation can only come through the old and yet ever new gospel. The only hope of social change, the only hope of restoration and renewal, the only hope of things being better is through the old and yet ever new gospel, which at the beginning of our era and again at the time of the Reformation has saved the threatened life of our race. Now, of course, Kuiper's addressing this um, uh, discussion of culture and, and renewal primarily through the lens of a Western European, which makes sense because he is a Western European. We could talk about other ways in which the gospel has impacted cultures in time and space and history around the world. Um, but I think that, that his um, argument is, is right. And this is an argument, if you've been paying attention, you know that Kuiper's made again and again. Um, he's dealing in his age with Darwinism, um, with um, uh, the, this idea that, that we, can, we can trust and hope in sort of evolutionary processes, um, that somehow things are just going to get better um, through natural selection or through um, just human wisdom working things out. And he says again and again, no, you can't, but you're hoping that. What human beings need in order um, to be restored and made new is outside intervention, divine work that comes in from the outside. We cannot have any hope that sort of just internally things are just on this upward trajectory that will never end, um, which is what he dealt with in his time. And I would argue that we see in our world today this sort of naive idea um, that, that things are just going to sort of keep going. And of course, what was the, the major thing that would happen historically, globally, um, for people that lived at Kuiper's age that thought, well, you know, we figured out technology, we've 
figured out how to have world peace because now we can talk to each other much more easily, right? What would the world do in the next 50 years after these lectures were, were given? Two world wars, right? Untold millions um, slaughtered and killed, um, you know, genocide um, of, of the Jewish people in Germany, of the Ukrainian people um, by the Soviet empire, you know, all kind like this optimism that the future is just going to um, to get better somehow um, uh, because human beings just sort of figure things out um, would be called dramatically into question by the events of the next 50 years. Um, although I would say it's interesting today that I think despite those things not being in t our too far rear mirror, um, there still is a great deal of optimism about globalization, right, and, and human connection, and we can work through things, and surely um, because of our technology, because of our insight, because um, of all these things, um, life in this world will just sort of continue on this upward trajectory. We have a very, um, I think as modern people, sometimes a very naive uh, sense of even the very recent past, um, and what, you know, we, we are very confident that we will never repeat the mistakes of our forebearers. We will only um, improve upon their actions, I think, um, which, which is, I think Kuiper would say, faulty reasoning, right? That you're not really being a good student of history if, and, and of the human heart if you believe that. Any thoughts about any of that? That sort of, I mean, Kuiper sort of laid out here the, the grounds for um, what he perceives to be his present moment and our, the connections between that and our day and age. Any thoughts or questions or comments? Yes, sir. It is. Yes. Yeah, I think that's what Kuiper would say, that, that our hope is not in this sort of um, human cooperation and wisdom, but in we have to have that, that divine spirit um, Coming, coming in and interfering, basically, with our plans in order for there actually to be growth and change that takes place. Yeah. Yes, Carrie. Just four days ago, somebody recommended a new book to me called Impossible People by Oz Ennis. Okay. And the premise is that the Christians were considered to be, they kept calling them impossible people. I see. Uh -huh. Right. Yes. That's how we're going to change. That's how we're going to make that much money. Right. No, I think that's a, so. So, talking about a new book by Oskinis, who's a, a wonderful Christian uh, writer, um, very wise man, called Impossible People, about how that was what the early church was called in the context of the Roman Empire, and that there are lessons there for us to learn in our day and age. And I think that's right. That is something where being a, a wise student of history can really help us. We can really. Um, look back, especially at the work, this is why church history is so important. We can look back and, and learn things from our forebearers in the faith um, and realize that in many ways, um, uh, you know, the, the, the anxieties, the pressures that we feel today are not that different from uh, past ages. And, and really, the, the answer is still the same, right? It's to faithfully follow Jesus and to patiently wait for the work of the Spirit. That that's where the hope of, of 
change actually resides. Right. Um, but just when you think of Korea, mm. I don't have any personal context about Korea, except that we hear that Korea went through, um, South Korea went mm -hmm. through probably some change. Yeah. And, and someone new all of a sudden, and people don't just assume it's himself. And it may be a little bit complicated. Yes, absolutely. And you can see this around the world today. And I think one thing that Kuiper probably could not have anticipated is the way in which Christianity would begin, I mean, things in Western Europe have not gotten better spiritually in the last 120 years, right? I think we could probably all say. Um, but things have gotten a lot better spiritually in other parts of the world, parts of the world that have been surprising to Kuiper. Areas like, yeah, Korea is a great example. Uh, I think China is another uh, great example today. That, that work of the Spirit that's ongoing has not yet, you know, influenced the dominant powers in China, but there's a great groundswell of the gospel that's taking place. Uh, places um, like Africa um, have received the gospel in a new way in the last 120 years. So it is, it is interesting that reformation that he was looking for, renewal that he was looking for, in many ways I think has not yet taken place within his context. The Netherlands certainly is a much less Christian country than it was even at his day and age but it has sort of dispersed out into the world in new and surprising ways. And, and I, think that's, I think that's how this usually works, right? Usually spiritual revival and renewal takes place in places that are unexpected. Um, and we should continue to have that sort of openness to the spirit. Um, yeah, absolutely. All right, let's, let's keep moving here. Um, uh, I think it's interesting, I just want to show you this on the bottom of this page, um, the spirit of modern life he's talking about. And remember this is written in 1898, and I, I just think it's, it's interesting, you know, we think about our day and age, that somehow things are, are fundamentally worse maybe, or you know, as Christians we can think that, but it's just interesting to hear him write about the things he was concerned about. He says, at the bottom of that second page, money, pleasure, and social power, these alone are the objects of pursuit. He's talking about his, his present day. And people are constantly growing less fastidious regarding the means employed to secure them. Thus the voice of conscience becomes less and less audible and duller the luster of the eye, which on the eve of the French Revolution still reflected some gleam of the ideal. The fire of all higher enthusiasm has been quenched, only the dead embers remain. In the midst of the weariness of life, what can restrain the disappointed from taking refuge in suicide? I think that's fascinating um, that he was feeling that pressure in his day and age. Because, of course, if you look at the, the, the statistics, at least in this nation today, um, one of the leading, the second leading, basically, cause of death for anyone under the age of 40, uh, more or less, is after accidental injury or death, accidental death, right, in a usually car wreck, um, is suicide. That, like, if you look at the, the death rates for today, if you're under 40, um, one of the ways that you're most likely to die statistically is by taking your own life. Um, and that, that is, that's something that's new. The suicide rate continues to rise um, in our nation. And, and it speaks to, I think, as Kuiper rightly um, talks about, 
a real bankruptcy at the heart of people's, like people are, are um, taking their own lives. Um, I'm just speaking in generalities here, not specifics. But in generalities, we could say that people are taking their lives because of this lack of fundamental hope, right? The lack of, of, of joy, the lack of um, truth, those kinds of things. Um, and that we're, we're bearing as a society the fruit um, of, <clears throat> of, of the emptiness um, that we have spiritually. And, and I think that it's interesting to me that Kuiper anticipated that. He says, deprived of the wholesome influence of rest, right? Um, and we would look back at this and think, well, probably in 1898, you probably got a lot more rest than we do. I don't know if that's true or not, but we probably think that. Right, I know. Before the smartphone, before whatever. Uh, the brain is overstimulated and overexerted right? in 1898 till the asylums are no longer adequate for housing the insane. You could also do some interesting work, I think, if you looked at the rise of mental illness in our nation and Western culture and its connection to um, our spiritual lives. I think that would be very profitable. Um, that life ought to be freer and marriage less binding. Sounds familiar. Is being accepted more and more on an established proposition. The cause of monogamy is no longer worth fighting for. 1898, he was saying this. Since polygamy and polyandry, um, uh, one man, multiple wives, one woman, multiple husbands, are being systemically glorified in all products of the realistic school of art and literature, right? So he's saying there's sexual confusion in his day and age. There's um, an unwillingness to hold to what the Bible teaches about sexual ethics. I think that sounds familiar. In harmony with this, religion, of course, is declared superfluous because it renders life gloomy, right? all those depressing Christians. But art... Art above all is in demand. And here he's probably not talking about, you know, museum art. He's talking about popular art. He's talking about um, um, that kind of thing. That is what is in demand, not for the sake of its ideal worth, but because it pleasures and intoxicates the senses. Again, you just want to say, Mr. Kuiper, welcome to YouTube. You have no idea, right? <laughs> welcome to um, modern culture and all of its, um, you know, how much work is spent on just entertaining people, right? Making them laugh, making them feel things. Um, that This is, right, the opiate in some ways of our modern age is um, entertainment. Uh, Thus people live in time and for temporal things and shut their ears to the tolling of the bells of eternity. I think we can agree that we have a sense for what that's like. I think this is helpful. It's helpful for us to see that the the diagnoses, the things that we um, long for in our day and age are things that were also longed for by Christians in our culture a um, hundred years ago or more. Um, and that, that, and so the, the, and part of the reason this is helpful um, is because I think it affirms some of the things that we suspect about the emptiness of our modern age. Um, but also it again points us to what is our ultimate hope? Our ultimate hope is not simply going back to the good old days. Our ultimate hope is in the future, and specifically in the Spirit's work in the future, that the Spirit must come and make these things new. The Spirit must impact us if there is to be anything um, that, that happens that is good around us. And we have to wait on Him. We have to, we have to be faithful and be patient and wait for the Spirit. 
Um, he writes also about modern Christianity, of course, uh, modernism and Christianity and the way that it's bankrupting, in his view, um, uh, the, the Christian um, witness in the world. Um, he talks about how um, there are now churches that don't believe in uh, the virgin birth, the conception of the, by the Holy Spirit. They don't believe in his resurrection and ascension and return from gu- judgment. They don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, at least the resurrection of the body. The name of the Christian religion is still being retained, he says, but in essence, it has become a quite different religion in its principle, even of a diametrically opposite character. Um, so he is obviously there in 1898 diagnosing something that would come about, right? We see this today. Um, uh, there are whole Christian denominations which have largely abandoned um, fundamentals of the historic Christian faith. He says um, that, that essentially, I, I think the diagnosis he gives for this is really helpful. He says, a theology which virtually destroys the authority of the Holy Scriptures is a sacred book, which sees in sin nothing but a lack of development. Right? Sin is just people haven't figured out things yet. Recognizes Christ for no more than a religious genius of central significance, views redemption as a mere reversal of our subjective mode of thinking, and indulges in mysticism that is dualistically opposed to the world of the intellect, such a theology is like a dam giving way before the first assault of the inrushing tide. Right? It's a really terrible dam, is what he's saying. It is a theology without hold upon the masses, a quasi-religion utterly powerless to restore our sadly tottering moral life to even a temporary footing. Um, he then goes, so he's talking about the, the weakness of sort of modern, uh, largely Protestant here, Christianity, um, um, that we have to uh, think about restoral or renewal and re- reformation within the church um, if we are to hope to have an influence in the culture. He then has a section we don't have time to get into, but talks about co-belligerence with Roman Catholicism, which I think is really fascinating and I encourage you to look at it. Um, he basically says, Yes, as, as Calvinists, we have a number of important disagreements with the Roman church. Um, we don't agree about justification. We don't agree about the mass. We don't agree about the invocation of saints and angels, worship of images, purgatory, etc., etc. He says, in all these areas, uh, we are as un- unflinching, unflinchingly opposed to Rome as our fathers were. But then he says this, But does not current literature show that these are not now the points on which the struggle of the age is concentrated? Right? He's saying basically the the great struggle of his day, and I would say ours as well, is not um, over uh, the mass. It's not over purgatory, um, these kinds of things. Um, These are not where the lines of battle are drawn, but these are the actual lines of battle. Theism over against pantheism. Sin over against imperfection. The divine Christ of God over against Jesus, the mere man. The cross, a sacrifice of reconciliation over against the cross as a symbol of martyrdom. The Bible as given by inspiration of God over against a purely human product. The Ten Commandments as ordained by God over against a mere archaeological document, etc., etc. And then he says, now in this conflict, right, the conflict we're actually fighting in the modern age, Rome is not an antagonist, but stands on our side. I think that's a pretty interesting thing for a Kuiper the Calvinist, right, to say. Rome stands on our side in these battles, inasmuch as she also recognizes and maintains the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the cross as an atoning sacrifice, the scriptures of the word of God, 
and the Ten Commandments as a divinely imposed rule of life. Now, we could talk, of course, about weaknesses in Roman Catholic theology and even ways in which some of those doctrines are threatened by some of those weaknesses, but um, I think it's interesting that Kuiper sees the Roman Church as a co-belligerent for him as a Reformation Protestant in his day and age. Um, Therefore, let me ask, if Romish theologians take up the sword to do valiant and skillful battle against the same tendency that we ourselves mean to fight to the death, is it not the part of wisdom to accept the valuable help of their elucidation? I, for my part, am not ashamed to confess that on many points my views have been clarified through my study of the Romish theologians. I think that's a pretty interesting um, point that Kuiper makes and one that's worth our consideration. Um, I just want to end with this illustration that, that Kuiper uses. Um, he says, basically, what do you, what's the answer? What's practically? Um, and essentially, he says, we have to be patient, and we have to be bold, and we have to be firm in our convictions about what we believe, about what the Bible teaches regarding God. Um, we should not be embarrassed, he says, of being Calvinists, of being Protestant Christians. Um, and the, the second full paragraph on that last page, he says, those churches which lay claim to professing the Reformed faith must cease being ashamed of this confession. Don't be ashamed of it. Don't be ashamed of what you believe, that we believe in the sovereignty of God. Yes, we do. Do you believe, we believe in the election of of um, men to salvation, that that is their only hope? Yes, we do. Do we believe that there is a hell, um, that God does punish wickedness? Yes, we do. Um, all these things that we believe that are offensive in our modern age, we could talk about sexual ethics, we could talk about whatever it might be. He's saying, don't be ashamed of those things. Don't be ashamed of believing what the scriptures teach. He says, albeit the church reformed in bone and marrow may be small and few in numbers, but as churches they will always prove indispensable for Calvinism, and here also the smallness of the seed need not disturb us, if only that seed be sound and whole, instinct with generative and irrepressible life. I think that's something that's good for us to hold on to, that in many ways this is what our, our, our calling is, it is to hold onto the seed, even though it's small, and to trust that even a small seed can grow into a large tree, right, through the work of the Spirit, um, which is, of course, the analogy that our Lord Jesus used about his own ministry and of the men that would follow him. The last full paragraph, the quickening of life comes not from men. It is the prerogative of God, and it is due to his sovereign will alone whether or not the tide of religious life rise high in one century and rose, runs to a low ebb in the next. In the moral world, too, we have at one time spring when all it is budding and rustling with life and again the cold of winter. So things are growing at one time in the seasons and they're dead at other times in the seasons. Should we expect anything different about the running of human history, the, the growth of the gospel, all these kinds of things? Now, the period in which we are living at present is surely at a low, low ebb religiously. Again, it's interesting. If he could be alive today and walk the streets of Amsterdam, how would he feel? It's probably much worse. 
Unless God send forth his spirit, there will be no turn, and fearfully rapid will be the descent of the waters. But you remember the Aeolian harp. I didn't remember the Aeolian harp. I had to look it up. Um, maybe you do too. Um, the the Aeolian harp is essentially, a, it's like a, um, a, a wind chime, except it's a harp. It's a big, it's a box that has strings, and you put it outside your house, and as the wind blows, it makes beautiful music somehow through the, I mean, it's really kind of interesting. Um, I'd never heard of it. Um, so it's kind of a really elaborate box of wind chimes, but they're not chimes, they're strings somehow. So, and apparently it dates back to the, you know, classical era or something, you know, it's, has a, it's a very ancient thing. So he uses, this is his final illustration. Remember the Aeolian harp, which men were wont to place outside their casement, their homes, that the breeze might wake its music into life. Until the wind blew, the harp remained silent, while again, even though the wind arose, if the harp did not lie in readiness, a rustling of the breeze might be heard, but not a single note of ethereal music delighted the ear. Right? If the harp wasn't out and the wind came, you didn't get the beautiful music. But if the harp sat out there and there was no wind, there was no music. Now let Calvinism be nothing but such an Aeolian harp, absolutely powerless as it is without the quickening spirit of God. Right? It must have the wind blowing to make the beautiful music. But still we feel it, our God-given duty to keep our harp, its strings tuned aright, ready in the window of God's holy Zion, awaiting the breath, the wind of the Spirit. Of course, that is where the word for Spirit comes in the Scriptures, both in Hebrew and Greek, right? It means breath, wind, I think that's a lovely metaphor that he uses there, and it, it's something I think that's helpful for us as we think about the future. I'm not with anxiety, not with delusion, with honesty, right? We're realists. We can look at the world around us, just as Kuiper did, but we also hopefully be wise enough to know the place from where our true hope comes, which is not our own effort, which is not um, somehow the progression of the human race being um, upward and upward and upward, but actually it's from the, the wind blowing, the Spirit coming, and us waiting in readiness for whatever the Spirit is going to do next. Uh, because you don't know. We don't know. We don't know what the future will bring, what the next year will bring. We'll probably be surprised a year from now. Uh, but we can trust that the Spirit will blow, that the sun will remake and renew all things. And I think that, that image of the waiting harp is a lovely one for us um, to think about in our own lives. And it's, I think, very consistent with how the New Testament speaks of these things as well. All right, let's, let's stand and pray. Um, Father, we give you thanks um, for the way in which your spirit does work throughout history. Um, we, Father, want to be good historians. We want to understand the past, um, and we want to have wisdom about the future. And yet, Father, we also acknowledge our limitations that <clears throat> we don't know what the future will bring, even... Um, we don't have any more knowledge of the next century than Kuiper did of his. And yet, Father, um, we can be um, confident that, that your spirit will continue to rejuvenate, will continue to bring new life, um, probably in ways that will surprise us that we can barely imagine uh, right now. And Father, we pray that this confidence in your work, um, not in our own hands, but in your work, in your strength, 
will give us the faith that we need to wait patiently um, for the renewal, um, not only of our culture around us and the globe and human civilization, but even renew our own lives, Father, as we wait uh, patiently for your spirit to work um, as he brings uh, both death and also resurrection. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.